Hello, good evening everybody. Welcome to Atwood Unleashed 126. Not co-hosted by Stephen Knight because he has food poisoning today, but he will be back next week and the week after. Now, I'm going to be doing an hour on YouTube. We have got two guests. We've got one of our friends from Iconic. Richard Willett is back at six, and he is editor and co-presenter of the WTAF and host of Classified. The latest summit in Davos for the World Economic Forum is happening right now in Davos. Richard will be discussing this as a talking point and what the WEF and Klaus Schwab have in store for humanity. Then from 6.30 to 7, we have got political activist Stephen Bassett seeking an end to the government-imposed truth embargo on the extraterrestrial presence engaging the human race. Oh, this is going to be fun at 6.30. Bassett is the executive director of the Paradigm Research Group, which aims to end the lies the government is telling about possible alien contact. Then we're taking a big break whilst Stephen recuperates. And at 9.30, we have a live stream. It's going to be a Locals exclusive with journalist Jake Alderstein. And he's discussing his work on the Japanese mafia known as the Yakuza. So that's going to be absolutely fascinating. Also, we're doing a competition whereby you could win two tickets to the Michael Francis tour coming in March and April of this year, just two months away now, at the major cities of the UK and in Ireland. And to win, to win two tickets for the Francis tour, you've got to email me Baby Ziggy's present baby weight. We are weighing baby Ziggy in the next couple of days. Bear in mind, he came out at almost 10 pounds on August 29th. And he's a big boy. Email me what you think his present weight is. And you could potentially win two tickets to the Michael Francis tour. The link's in the description box for the tour. You can click on it and check out all the locations. If there's one near you. Anyway, my email is atwood, A-T-T-Wood, dot, Sean, S-H-A-U-N, at hotmail.co.uk. Just put baby Ziggy and a weight in pounds, and uh, the closest will be announced next week, and we will let you know who has won. Before we go over to our first guest... Put a one in the chat if you've been watching any of this stuff about the post office scandal. Me and Jen started watching it. Absolutely horrified. Somebody actually contacted me last year who'd been a branch owner in the post office. And this software, Horizon, installed by Fujitsu, $2 billion contract, it was telling these people running the post offices that they had not 
balance their books correctly and they had stolen money and the losses kept getting bigger and bigger and these people were completely honest someone yeah alan bates Derek atwood alan bates my dad's in the chat good on you alan bates i'm only on episode one right now shout out to Derek atwood <laughs> these people some of them ended their lives some of them ended up in prison some of them had to admit to stealing the money even though they hadn't to avoid prison. This is how insane the system is. And Horizon was used by 11,500 branches. It was processing 6 million transactions daily. It cost over 1 billion to install and it eventually affected 18,000 post offices throughout the UK. On 8th of April 2021, after software problems caused the scandal, Post Office Chief Exec Nick Reed announced the Ryzen system will be replaced by a new IT system that will be more user-friendly, easy to adapt for new products and services, and cloud-based to ensure easy maintenance and ready interoperability with other systems. Sounds like corporate doublespeak to me. He said this will not be easy. It will, after all, be among the biggest, if not the biggest, IT rollout in a country when the time comes, but the change is necessary and overdue. Well, I say some of these post office people should be held to account. But as is always the case with people that connected to the highest level of politics and governments who get these crony, nepotistic, billion pound contracts nothing ever happens to them they're in the untouchable class all right first guest i heard a little beep then and it looks like richard is about to join us let me bring him in one second here we go Hey, Richard, how's it going, my friend? I'm good, mate. Thank you for, for asking me on. Yeah, I've been rushing around trying to get some notes together. Um, but yeah, I'll go good. How are you? Yeah, I'm, we're doing great. And I'm looking forward to coming on your platform in February. Yeah, that'd be great. Great to have you on. I don't think I've ever interviewed you. All the years we've kind of been in the same sphere, um, but we've never crossed paths until recently, like on, on terms of being on the same show. So. Well, I've got three books out about Epstein and I've just got one published about Jimmy Savile. So there's lots that I can talk they, about on those subjects. <laughs> and they connect. Well, everything connects. This is this is the thing, isn't it? Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, Epstein is to me is the uh, weakest link to put it um, in, a, in a kind of game show platform terminology um, to all of this, I believe. Yeah, we did a lot on it years ago, but we're banned from talking about it on this platform so we'll go over to the world economic forum <laughs> what's your thoughts on what's happening there well i mean can i mention epstein at all like in terms well i'm of... banned i've lost my channel twice uh talking about it right yeah, okay. yeah. So we're fine we're, what we've said so far is fine but let's just not uh add anything to it okay i'll, I'll call yeah, him the man yeah. i will just call him the man <laughs> from now on um, okay, so yeah, I mean, I, I'm catching up on it. I've been editing all day a UFO podcast that's going out tonight on Iconic. So I've been trying to catch up in the last couple of hours. But the, the most, the, the kind of disappoints me really is seeing a lot of the alternative media jump on this Malay guy as if he's 
he's um, another savior. They're trying to push them all in, aren't they? Trump's having a go. You've got Elon Musk having a go. And now Malay said something nice. Everybody's like, oh, no, he seems nice. <laughs> so um, that was really disappointing to see that just now. Um, I have my... Well, it's clear and obvious connections he has here. We had last week, didn't we? We had the tunnels being dug out in Brooklyn um, and the mattresses coming out there and the, the kids' high chair. Well, only a few weeks before that, this Malay fella was um, outside that building um, in Queens being photographed with this um, Habad Lubavitch, who are a messianic kind of sect of Judaism, very extreme. Um, it's no way indicative of what... Most people of the Jewish faith believe these are very extreme Kabbalists, Kabbalists, Lurianic Kabbalists. So he was with them. Um, so you can't, uh, I mean, you can't, people are kind of almost separating information now when it doesn't fit into their narrative. I don't know if you're finding that. Well, constantly, yes. Um, so going over to the WEF, is that happening right now? Yeah, I think he's speaking there. Some people have been okay. posting recently today. And what he said is basically um, he seems to be saying um, that the very rich people are being able to control everyone. And it's, it's becoming socialism and communism, basically, over here in the West. And he's having a go at a lot of the West, basically, to saying, saying that. But the, at the same time, he's saying these things. And as um, my friend David says, look at what they're actually doing, not what they're saying. Because at the same point, he's hanging around with these guys outside of, of a very disturbing tunnel that we found last week. So... That, that people are jumping on him now, right now, and that's all I can. I, I'm still, yeah, 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 I hear you. Yeah, I hear you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so basically, these people say anything that will get them the votes, and then do the complete opposite when they get in power because they are summoned by their paymasters through the lobbyists to quid pro quo back the favors they now owe after lying to the public. We see this over and over again. Do you think Trump is going to get in at the next election? It looks like it to me. Yes, he, I believe he probably is. But does it like matter? Like if you again look at this Habad Lubavitch guys, and we I think finding the common connection. So you look at this Habad Lubavitch, well, Jared Kushner, who's also been seen with Trump recently in Qatar at the football. Um, he is a, a Shabadnik openly with Ivanka. So they're very much in there with Trump. So um, if you're looking at Putin, He's very much in there with Habad Lubavitch. If you're looking at Malay, as I just said, Habad Lubavitch. If you look at Netanyahu, openly since 1990 with the Moshai, talking about how he's going to be the one to push forward what basically he's doing now in the Middle East. Um, and if you look at uh, all of these major players, they connect to this one group. So, yes, he may well do, but he's not in charge at all. I call them the real men in black. And that's what, to me, they really are. <laughs> so, viewers, wherever you are watching this in the world, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, if you've got any questions for Richard, please put them in the chat. You mentioned you've got a UFO guy you, you're doing something with today. What's going on there? Yeah, his name's Charles Upton. Really nice guy. He's like his old kind of well-to-do kind of... Uh, he's not new agey, but he's he's a, a, a Sufi... Um, I can't remember what he said he was, but he's a, he's a Sufi. And they, he basically talks about how the disclosure of these UFOs is a complete um, deception. So his book is The Alien Deception, um, The Alien Disclosure Deception. And he's on tonight and he's talking about how they hit basically what they're doing is using things like CERN to tap into another 
world, an alternative world where they can kind of come in for a little while and opening up portals here. And what we're seeing is not necessarily aliens, but it's these things that we call the jinn. Um, they, we call them demons or diamonds or um, all sorts of reptilians. How they're letting them in through things like CERN. And we see all these bizarre like rituals they do at CERN. We can see the, the, the although they said that was some sort of play and they shouldn't allow them people on to do it, which is bizarre. Um, with Shiva, the god, the destroyer, um, and how they see it is the third eye would kind of decimate this uh, universe once it opened so we're seeing all of these occultism things play out and he touches on all of that and we saw the bay um the tunnel opening um i believe it was brussels with the, the, the really weird baphomet thing going on there so this stuff is absolutely everywhere and these guys absolutely believe it and it's all connected so what is cern could you expand on that for the viewers yeah cern is a place where in um switzerland geneva and um, it's underground it's a houses a particle accelerator and what they they claim to be doing is smashing the god oh looking for the god particle by smashing atoms together which sounds horrific and sounds very dangerous but this is what these people do so um what fascinated me is i found out recently looking to this again let's come back to the so to new york and brooklyn and tunnels underneath columbia university um in world war ii um originally the build one of the buildings there was an insane asylum um, it's still there now, um, but underneath there they built there's tunnels there, and um, during World War Two they they housed a particle accelerator there too that there as well and in those tunnels that are still there by the way in Columbia University, um, and that became the particle accelerator for the Manhattan Project in New Mexico, and um, so what they're doing is very similar to that, and a lot of people claim they're opening up portals there to other worlds and and messing around with things they shouldn't be messing around with. Yeah, I remember watching David when he was he at Wembley and it was a really long speech that he gave. It was like all day long and he was talking about the different life forms out there and how they, let me try and uh, remember what he said now, their energy comes into humans through, could you, could you expand on that? Can you remember what you yeah, said? Yeah, yeah. So what David basically says is that the energy, so we're on a wavelength and we, we only mm. see, let's see, 0.05% of the uh, the visual spectrum, which ties into the rainbow, actually, and to the world to come and uh, somewhere over the rainbow and this transhumanist agenda, which is the rainbow is part of, is their symbol. Anyways, because it's the light spectrum. So he talks about these entities being able to come into this visual spectrum using the person, like it's possession, basically, um, but also changing them. So we would see them see we're not seeing a physical change because there's nothing physical in this earth. Obviously, everything we touch is moving. It's particles moving. It's just um, it looks solid. So he's talking about it's a basically a frequency change. So that's what he talks about. But that comes into what we're talking about with the gin. We're talking about with, with the reptilians. And I, I interviewed, I know you interviewed as well, um, Juliet Bryant, who said that she saw the man um that we're not allowed to to name um he she claims that she saw him shift during one of the episodes or one of the abuse um instances and also she saw um she woke up on a lab laboratory table paralyzed under zorro ranch she believes again the connection there is in new mexico and there's a lot going on in new mexico the new mexico is not far from dulce base or dull space the um, famously in conspiracy circles for the Dulce Wars with the reptilians and the greys underneath the ground. It's also not far from a Scientology building in New Mexico called the Spiritual, the Church for Spiritual Technology, which again is um, Scientology. 
And um, we know Elrond Ron Hubbard was into all of this sci-fi stuff. And he also went to um, to college. He was in the house as the guy, something Peterson. I can't remember his name. I shouldn't do because I just edited it today. But he was in, um, he was at university or college in the same house of this guy who was um, like the sidekick of Anton LaVey. Um, so it's, it's all kicking off in New Mexico, um, Sean. And that seems to be where they kind of might be putting their underground bunkers, if people can believe that. And that ties into the World Economic Forum and what they're talking about with the transhumanist agenda and attaching us to the cloud. It all does connect. It absolutely all connects. And the man we can't we can't talk about, he was funding a lot of this stuff. Or we know he wanted to seed the world with his with his race as well. Um, so that's it's all out there. It all connects. Indeed. And what about Zuckerberg? What he's been building? What's he been? I see. I don't know much about that. What is he building at the moment? That's oh, he's got this thing in in Hawaii where he's got he's preparing for Armageddon. Basically, is he? <laughs> yeah, You'd know. He's got bunkers, everything. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, okay. Well, at least he, know, he probably knows something we don't. And um, that's 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 the point with this Kabbalist come back to the Habab Lubavitch. Their whole thing is the Solomon's Temple. I think I spoke about this last time we were on um, the Middle East. Uh, but they need to clear the earth for a thousand years in the Sabbath, which is the seventh millennium to them, which is their day of rest, obviously, when you work through the seven days of the week. All comes back to, so where are they going to go for that thousand years? Well, CJB Books, Christopher John Beoknes, who I do a lot of work with now, who's fantastic on the Kabbalah. Um, he talks about them going underground for a thousand years. So, guys, remember these are lunatics. I'm not saying I believe in these things. I'm saying they believe in these things. And I think that's a, def uh, a distinction we need to make, make um, uh, yeah, obvious. The other thing I remember David saying that day was how these entities and predatory elites prey off the energy of children. Yep, that's um, coming back to Lush. Um, that, that's the loose. I mean, that's off everybody, but children, especially, it has a kind of the adrenochrome thing comes into that, don't doesn't it? And then we have, I think it's over one hundred forty thousand, four hundred eighty thousand, I believe. I could be wrong, but around about that, children go missing in the U U.S. every year. I mean, wow. come on, guys. And we just found. I'm not saying these are connected in any way, but look at the tunnels under New York. They're absolutely everywhere. And one of the things I re I remember hearing when I first started looking this is 20 years ago was New York was a um, a kind of like a, a nest for these reptilian entities. Now, it might just be a euphemism or a, is that euphemism or a, a, an analogy? <laughs> it's not a euphemism, is it? It depends what you're into, I suppose. Um, for an analogy for, for these people being taken underground in New York, but there is something going on. Like New York just – New York and New Mexico – fit together in in this so yeah, that's loose and adrenochrome as we see abramovich wasn't she a spokesperson for israel um, let's actually she's saying stay stay let's stay away from this stuff all right let's go over to savile then what um research have you guys done into savile Oh, well, we know the, the obvious stuff. Um, and you know far more than me about the savile stuff we know obviously the connection to the royal family we knew that he was basically a black magician um, I believe he was actually goes way back. Um, he was abused by possibly his mum. He had that. He kept all his mum's stuff in a really weird wardrobe. I remember that thinking that's that's odd. Um, so that had kind of like a connotations to what's the famous film Psycho, where he keeps all his mum's stuff. Um, yeah. So yeah, do you remember that? And wasn't he friends with one of the the kind of like the mass the uh, mass murderers? What was his name? Not uh, what was his name? Yorkshire Ripper, Peter Sutcliffe. Yeah, so imagine being friends with them. Um, I remember the photo of Suchcliffe meeting Frank Bruno 
And I just think he through the going, I've no idea who you are, but you terrified yeah. me. Yeah, yeah, in Broadmoor that was. Was it? Was that Broadmoor? That was oh, Broadmoor. Wow. Edwina Curry gave Savile the keys to Broadmoor. Yes, she did. And I'm she's uh yeah, I think she's got a lot to do with some of this stuff. If we um but again, that's something that needs to be looked into. But Savile, we know, was Supposed to be the the person between Diana and um, Prince Charles and trying to fix their marriage. Obviously, that's not the case. Um, Lord Mountbatten's been known for his um, extracurricular activities, and um, obviously Savile was well known for being doing these things. But he again, he was just the top level. He was a fixer, as the show was trying to tell you, and they'll always laugh at you and put it in your face. And he he was the fixer, so we know that, and we know it's attached to the royals. And we come back to the man we can't speak about while well, he's obviously attached to the royals through um andrew so you know come on guys look at balmoral castle look at the, the crest of balmoral castle it has the seagull of saturn on it it has the seagull of saturn on it what do you think about the way savile was buried with his you know coffin tilted at the 45 degree angle and masonic um people helping in attendance well, he was obviously connected. I think he's way above them, and and it's not to say every mason is like that, but yeah, that has something to do with resurrection, doesn't it? And immortality, um, I believe. Um, and immortality is a massive part of what they believe in. Um, actually, talking about the man we can't um, we can't mention. His he worked with a guy called George Church. Took some money off of him. Um, George Church is uh, a well known kind of kind of like a transhumanist, but ish he's a he's a he's a well-known scientist and that sort of thing he worked with a guy called james clement and he was looking into the study of super centen centenarians which means basically anyone who lives over 100 and he was looking into what makes them live so long um and he's transhumanist so these guys are all attached the funding's looking into this stuff so it all comes together into like the uh the old roman mythologies of of hollywood where you become a star and you live forever and um it goes back to rome and you go back to uh the the um diana's mirror in rome which is basically the hollywood hills if you look at the hollywood hills and look at diana's mirror in rome it's the same thing and in that mythology they used to get rich aristocrats to come in tempt them in with the young girls and then obviously just kill them um and but they would promise them immortality but they would steal their riches so in hollywood now you're stealing their talents but they will become immortal by selling their talents to you because, and then you get your star and that. And that's, that's, it's the same rituals over and over again. They've just been modernized. Yeah. And, the, and technology has been infused into them. So you got a question from Edward. He's wondering if you've done any research into ley lines. Ley lines is, is a weak moment for me and a weak moment. Is that the right one? Weak area for me, but yes, there's a really good documentary. And I'm not just saying that because I work with iconic a lot, but iconic, whereas uh, where David, traces all the dragon lines throughout um, the UK and it's fascinating to look into there where they're pinpointed things so it's almost like a um, acupuncture for the planet they've put things on specific ley lines um, so the dragon ley lines are really really and the fact that they're called dragon ley lines as well is is in itself really interesting so have a look at that one on on iconic because that will be able to uh, to enlighten you more than I can about that subject what is Richard most concerned about at this moment in time? Um, I think that this whole end times thing. Actually, it's the it's the East versus West war. 
clearly the behemoth versus the leviathan if you want the biblical understands it they're playing that out and they're basically pitching the east versus the west and it will be this cult it's a, these cabalists that i believe that are the that are sitting there watching everybody destroy each other it's a mutually destructive war when you look into the biblical text the leviathan would be representing the west of the sea and the behemoth would be the east, the Arab nations, the land. The Arab nations would destroy the live the the, the west, um, and then they would be so tired and and destroyed themselves that they would be easy pickings for for what is this cult? And and I just people aren't understanding what's going on here. They're playing this out. Is that what's up with the bunkers then? That these people are anticipating in a, a you know era of mutually assured destruction by nuclear weapons. They're going to have to bury themselves for a while before they resurface. Yep, I think that's exactly what's going to happen. As absurd as it sounds, the thousand years they need to disappear to. We hear all of these books where they have to stay under under or go to a different planet um, for a thousand years. So, yeah, I think that's exactly what's happened. And then these places are all over the world. I mean, these are ancient cities as well. But I think especially New Mexico, when you look at the bases there, I think if you went to New Mexico, you would find um, a lot, a, a city under there which is what phil schneider said um back in the, the 90s that there was a city under there and the technology they've got and remember elon musk he owns the boring company why who knows what mm. why do you think well he's he's he wants he wants a place he wants to be one of the six hundred thousand points of light he wants to go underneath there <laughs> really doesn't he um but they're again saying that there's another aspect to musk which i find really interesting is that he wants to colonize mars um so maybe he thinks okay we'll leave the world to them and we'll go up there and we'll live up there because they have till 2240 before they believe that their god yahweh which is really just a cover for um seth tython or set um to come back and they need to get it done before then remember these aren't my beliefs these are the beliefs of this e extreme cult that believe an end times cult did you listen to the conversation between elon musk and alex jones i did and i was disappointed um alex knows far better than that again this is i'm finding this kind of so strange how people just change personality overnight because <laughs> like what it's like, it, it's very odd. So yeah, I found it disappointing. I actually watched a video of his yesterday or this morning, no, this morning, and he was talking about, and I don't know if you guys have seen it, but go and check it out on his um, his ex account, where he's basically saying, "Oh well, this place has gone too far. It's too much of a mess. Should God just press the button and wipe it out?" That's exactly what he's saying. Well, it's not verbatim, but it's it's pretty much what he's saying. So that's an end times analogy. So that's good. So he's pushing that now. So what happened? Why is he suddenly in bed with Musk when he knows for the fact that the guy's a transhumanist? He knows where the money's going from. And when you look at this, you've got Qatar on one side and the Saudi Arabian nations on one side funding X. And then on the other side, he's at a football game with Jared Kushner, who is a Shabadnik it's for, for, the Zion, for the Zionist Israel. So again, are they playing off both sides together? Is it a pincer effect? I would hazard to guess that it probably is, yes. There's a lot of contradictions there. you got a question from Gene. Any news on the asteroid about to visit us 2040-ish? Or celebrities, any more about celebrities with underground bunkers? That's a great question. I remember, I, I recognise the name, Gene. Thank you for, for joining in. Um, 
I haven't read much about that, but that again ties in with the whole um, end times prophecy. I would question that a lot. And remember NASA, who NASA are and where they come from and their origins with Project Paperclip and and um, where they actually come from and who they actually work with. So I would question that that's a, that's a kind of fear-mongering thing. And also there's something called an egregore, which is about people, they believe that they put it in the public consciousness and pe enough people believe it, it becomes true which is basically the, more, the, the esoteric underlining of the, the, the modernised book, The Secret. Gene has got a question as well. Do you ever consider Billy Meyer's predictions? Oh, that goes back. I can't remember his predictions. I'd have to look into that, Gene. Um, that's, I can't pretend to remember what his predictions were, but the, the room, do you know? Can you remember any? This is getting way too esoteric for my yeah. <laughs> my pea brain. We've got um, Jake is asking about solar micronova that comes every twelve thousand years. <laughs> Do you know think about that? Um, I don't. But again, it looks like an end times kind of worry. Um, I'd have to look into that, but again, I believe that these things who are we looking for for this information and what is it really trying to do? It's, it's causing fear again. They may believe in egregores, um, and um, which are again, it's a collective consciousness. It usually some people see it as an as a being, a devil, or a demon that comes to life because enough people believe it. Um, you get your transhumanist version, which means everybody connected to the one mind, which is. Uh, Musk's having a little help with that. Um, everyone connected to the one mind uh, through the Neuralink, but um, it's the hive mind. But really, um, when you look into the cult, that's about basically enough people believing it. And I think that that's what they try and do with films and movies. It's part of it is, is predictive programs, another word for it. But it's basically getting enough people to believe it so they bring it bound up. Um, about themselves also when things start to happen it's not too much of a culture shock so um like the fabian society used to do they drip things out change it over time so you would actually go well yeah of course we were heading that way so when you hear them all going like, ai is going to take over we need to catch up ai is going to take over we need to catch up we'll stop building it then like it's not happening on its own is it so they're they're they are placing the things in the way for you to be worried about. So you bring them about and accept that, okay, this is something I've got to deal with when we don't have to, because we don't have to make it happen in the first place. Question from Jake. He's wondering whether you're familiar with the globalist plan told by Albert Pike in the 1870s. Yeah, that's the three world wars. I mean, people dispute that, but again, look, look at it, look at what's going on. So yeah, the three world wars, this last world war would be a nuclear war. I think that's what they're pushing for. I don't think it will happen. I think these lunatics are just lunatics. But I do think they're going to, as you can see, as they're doing in the Middle East already, a lot of people can die, a lot of innocent children, a lot of innocent people, because quite frankly, we're all being used in this, either side. If you're not in the 1%, you're being used. So, yes, that's a possibility. Again, that could be an egregore. If he was a Freemason, he could be putting out there into the public psychology as a kind of a, a power of suggestion type thing. So, but yes, it, that seems to be what they're trying to play out, the Third World War. Again, I think we've been in, in that Third World War for a long time. It's an information war. And then it culminates in that that event. I, I don't think we'll get there. I, I mean, you'd hope not, wouldn't you? But Alex Jones surely does. He thinks we're, we're on our way. Just when I thought the questions and comments couldn't get any more esoteric. You're bringing out this, this side out of people. Let's see if we can get your comment on black cubes. Something oh, yeah. weird with the black cube. It is most major as a granite statue. It's um, blah, 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 blah. Roman cross, two dimensions cube. Yeah. Um, yeah, the black 
the black cube um, represents many, many things, but the black, black cube is obviously Saturn. Black cube um, represents Saturn. So if you see it, it's, it's a representation of uh, the satanic cult, but it comes with the Kabbalah. Um, sorry, the, the Kabbalah is a black cube. Um, if you look at the cross flattened out, um, is a black cube. If you look at all the major, um, all the, uh, sorry, the Abrahamic religions, they have the black cube evolved. But what it actually represents in the Kabbalist, which I believe is where what's kind of pushing this, um, is the place where Shekinah, who's the female aspect of Yahweh, will meet in the back of Solomon's temple. And it's a black cube. It's a cube. It's all a um, perfect cube. They will meet there. They will have their fun times, their, their wedding night. And they will reunite as one androgynous being, which is where the androgynous snuff comes from because the gods were androgynous. That's what the black cube is. The black cube is the smoke within the, the cube itself. So the black cube always represents Saturn and it's everywhere. And if you look at um, the Roman numerals, it comes out IXXI, that's 911. It's, uh, it's everywhere. Trump Towers in Qatar, I believe, has a black cube on top. It's, it's, a, it's a symbol of Saturn. To get your comment on Ohm's Elon Musk conspiracy. The day after the FDA approved Neuralink trials, Elon flew to China to discuss his Tesla plant, mm. Neuralink, open science research, and autonomous driving cars experiment. What do you think yeah, about that? I think they're all connected. I don't think you're going to have you having China against. This is a globalist thing. And different places, it's like anywhere. Like you would have China as the technology arm of it. Obviously, you've got Israel very much to do with the intelligence technology side of it and we've got isabel isabella maxwell i believe she's part of the world economic forum um so these are all connected absolutely you're completely right and and for him to be playing um playing messiah son of joseph they call him so it's the good cop versus the bad cop the bad cop at the moment is the messiah son of david because there's two bloodlines and that would be netanyahu so you're looking at good cop, bad cop each time. It's pro wrestling. If you can figure out the pro wrestling, you'll be all right. So China, they're all involved. They're all involved to certain different elements to it um, at a certain level. Again, he is he, he is just being used, bless him. And I think he's actually might even be on the spectrum. I, I feel kind of sorry for him at times, to be honest. Question, question from Gene. What is Richard's take on the infiltration or the invasion of refugees taking over the UK? It's a, um, it's a, like a color revolution, isn't it? It's a George Soros thing. It's it's about kind of taking away any sovereignty for different places. So you're reliant on the next country for what you need, and the more you're reliant on elsewhere, um, the more vulnerable you are. So you're not collectively of a unit. So it's kind of like a watering down of everything: faiths, religions, pitching pitting people against each other. Um, that's exactly what it's about. It's it's chaos out of order. It's the other way around. And that's what they want to create. And everybody thinks it's order out of chaos. But if you look at the satanic elements of this, it's always an inversion. So they don't, their order is, your order is their chaos. So they want their chaos. They want their order, which is our chaos, if that makes sense. So it's chaos. It's a chaos engine. Right. We're nearly out of time. We're about to bring Steve Bassett in. Do you want to tell the viewers where they can find you and support you, Richard? Yeah, thank you for having me on, Sean. I really appreciate it. I'm going to talk 100 mile an hour, but I'm trying to fit as much in. Um, Iconic.com, you'll find my show classified every week on a Wednesday evening. And you'll find me on uh, X at WTAF Rich, W-T-A-F Rich. And I shall be going on Iconic in February. So Rich's links are down there below this video. Please go down and support his work. And we will see you next time. And thanks for being such a knowledgeable an eloquent speaker. Take care, my friend. Thank you, mate. I appreciate it. Take care. Cheers. Bye-bye.
Right. Thank you for all your questions as well, viewers. We're about to bring in Steve and we are going over to the government imposed truth embargo on the extraterrestrial presence engaging the human race. Bassett is the executive director at the Paradigm Research Group, which aims to end the lies the government is telling about possible alien contact. So get ready for this one. And if you do have any questions, please put them in the chat. Hello, Steve. How are you doing, my friend? Not too bad. Thank you for joining us. And could you just tell the viewers, I have done a brief intro. Could you just tell the viewers how you got into this genre? Well, I made a decision in 1995 that I was going to be doing something that uh, I wanted to do that was meaningful. I'd already done a lot of unmeaningful things. And and I jumped into the issue by going to uh, vol volunteering for John Mack's work with abductees in Cambridge. I spent four months there, and then I made the decision to engage the issue politically. Went to Washington, D.C., uh, registered as a lobbyist. I was the first person to do so in 1996, and that got the attention of some media, including the Washington Post. They wrote some articles, and now there's been over 600 articles written about at least my contributions and involvement in this issue uh, as an activist and an advocate for ending the truth embargo. Right, you've got lots of questions coming in, but before we go there, let's just slow that down a bit. So on the trajectory of your life, at what point did this subject start to interest you? Or was there an incident? Did you see something or become aware of something? No, no. Uh, I, I loved science fiction as a kid. I excelled in science and math. Okay, great. Uh, I, Shakespeare didn't like so much. It, it, it was supposedly English. I never believed that. Uh, <laughs> And then I would note these articles that would turn up even when I was a kid back in the uh, 60s, right? Um, did I say 60s? I meant 50s. Uh, <laughs> and I go, oh, that's, that's very interesting. And I had no bias. I had no religious bias. I had no intellectual bias of any kind. Uh, just read and said, this, this is real. This is something special. Uh, a particular note, in 1966, and I was 20 at the time. I read the I read the uh, Look magazine story about Betty and Barney Hill's encounters. I read that, and I said, "Well, clearly that's extraterrestrial." And so I, I had no bias, and I was pretty convinced that what we were seeing was was uh, extraterrestrial. And as a science fiction buff, I'm going, "Well, that's great. I can't wait to learn more." And then I went about leading my life, and the government didn't do anything. The articles would turn up. Nothing from the government. And, I, and so I just, I, I, I sort of noted that, but I went on. It was in, not when I, when I, in 95, when I made my decision to essentially uh, uh, pick a path of service, really. I, I mean, I decided to, to serve. What can I say? Uh, this was the issue that I decided on, primarily because of John Mack's book, Abduction, uh, and the implications of a Pulitzer Prize winning head of psychiatry, Harvard professor uh engaging this issue i mean that that told me that we'd crossed a, a significant threshold and i was able to go volunteer and that just got me going now 26 years later uh we're about to i think see uh the goal of uh this activist work come 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 to pass so you want less shakespeare in the schools and more phil dick that's right 
Great stuff. All right. I've seen all the sci-fi movies, the great ones. They, they, they've, they've affected me in ways that no other movies can. Uh, I, I, so I guess that's just in my genes or something. I don't I remember I remember watching Blade Runner with my dad when I was a younger person and I was really fascinated. Sure. Right, you got a um, question from Adam. Any thoughts on aliens visiting the mall in Miami? That's just there's a lot of these kinds of things happening. The 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 attention and interest of the world's people now is at unprecedented peak. And so anything that happens, anything, they jump on it. Right? It's it's getting eyeballs for the media. They're getting they're making money. Uh, the stigma is virtually gone. And so anything that, that, that somebody gets a photo of or they interpret something, including the backyard events in Las Vegas, uh, strange clouds over Turkey, uh, everything is being covered. And I really don't pay attention to almost any of it. <laughs> it's like I note it, but the odds are there's almost no connection, really, no real connection. It's fundamentally important because it reflects the the growing uh, interest in the subject, which the government should be taking notice of. There is plenty of really significant stuff happening that uh, keeps me busy. Did, did you know Phil Schneider? That's the next no. question. Okay, so you just said there there's lots of real stuff that we should be focusing on. Let's move over to that then. What would be at the top of the list? What, what's going on right now in the United States is a extremely complex process politically uh, that is very difficult to follow and understand, even if you're paying 24-7 attention like I am. The only thing comparable, I think, in the UK would have been the effort, uh, a successful effort by the United Kingdom to get out from under the, to leave the, the European Union, Brexit. It went on for years. It was extraordinarily complicated. Back, forth, this, that, maneuvers like a giant chess game. And eventually, it happened. That's happening here. Uh, while the truth embargo is 77 years on, the, the, the effort, which quickly became political, to get out from under, in this case, not the European Union, but the truth embargo, the policy that the government is, has held, is has been this complex political process underway uh and that's it's got there's been remarkable unprecedented events that have taken place as this process is going forward so it is those events that i'm following closely and and starting to get involved with that uh, uh indicates clearly that we could have disclosure very soon steve if it's a giant chess game who's mm -hmm. pushing the pieces there are four players. This is this is like a a four person chess game. I love this analogy. I'm I'm pretty sure you can buy a four person chess game. It's a bigger board, but everybody has the same usual pieces. But obviously, with four players, it, the complexity is exponentially increased. All right, uh, you can team up, whatever the hell. Anyway, the point is four person chess. Not quite three-dimensional chess, but still pretty complicated. Now, there are four players in this extremely important and complicated chess game. One is the United States Congress, right? Another is the military intelligence complex, the totality of it in the United States. Uh, the third player, who is not making a lot of moves, kind of hanging back and watching, is the executive branch of the U.S. government, the White House. And the fourth player is the American people, conjoined with uh american journalism which is now on our side 
Um, and so that player, which includes me, is really much stronger than it's ever been because the stigma of the issue is virtually gone. Now, they're the odd person that says something stupid and dumb, but believe me, the stigma is essentially gone. Uh, and so there, there is much less resistance. And so whether you're and, and then the media made me mainstream media, which includes the UK media, UK papers are all over this. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of articles are being written. Uh, and, and, and many of those are logged into my print media archive, which is now up to 15,000 articles. Uh, so the UK people get a huge amount of coverage of this and they're very well informed. Uh, but it's also the case in the United States. And so we're a major player now. And so this chain, this, this game is, is a four dimensional chess. And I'm happy to talk about some of the most profound moves that have happened in the last year or so, uh, if that is what you want. So what about countries like China and Russia? How are they involved? We don't know. Uh, they play their cards close to their vest on this issue. Uh, we do know there's plenty of research going on in China. There's plenty of interest in the subject in the, in, in the, in the Soviet Union and Russia. Uh, there's certainly interest in other countries. Mexico has an extremely high level of interest in the subject amongst the Mexican people. Uh, so does Brazil. There's a lot of activity in, um, in Italy. But in terms of what we'll call defined efforts and formal efforts uh, involving all four of these chess players uh, to arrive at a point where a head of state, in this case, the president of the United States, can formally confirm the non-human extraterrestrial presence, which I labeled capital D disclosure some 20 years ago, that's happening here. The, 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 the democratic world, the West, the free world, whatever the hell you want to call it, which is essentially all the allies of the United States after World War II and many other countries have absolutely deferred to the U.S. on this issue. In other words, you're, you're leading, it's your call. When you're ready, you do it. All right. And that's a significant portion of the world's countries. There's some that are, I think they're, they're very small nations. They got a lot of problems to deal with and their attitude is whatever you guys want to do. We, we're, we're busy just keeping afloat. And then you have a number of autocracies uh, who who could definitely uh, blow this up, issue up if they wanted to, but they choose specifically not to. And by and large, the reason is autocratic countries run by the usual megalomaniacal narcissistic lunatics and psychopaths, uh, they, they, their, their whole existence and survival is based on maximum control. They want, they want to know everything the people are doing they don't they only want the people to know what they and their media want to tell them. And so acknowledging extraterrestrial presence, which makes their their little, you know, uh, vanity project running some country into the ground uh, seems so much smaller, so trivial and expands the potential worldview of people that they don't they want to do it. It doesn't mean they couldn't. They choose not to. So that's pretty much all the nations in the world. OK, and that's how we have managed to go 76 years without any formal acknowledgement from a head of state of something that has been flying over our head the entire time and seen millions of times. Right. With massive research being done, filling up thousands of books, hundreds of times more than I have behind me. That's how it has happened. It's one of the most amazing, I think, uh, episodes 
in all of human history. Uh, and it was, you know, it was good while it lasted, but the truth embargo is about to, is about to end. You said you can regale us with some of the biggest or most recent moves. What are they? The most important stuff is essentially the politics. After the two the Stars Academy group of 10 came forward, uh, this issue tr changed. Uh, and and the, the switch was the New York Times articles of 2017 with the con camera footage and all that. It just changed a lot. And it opened the door for much more media coverage. And then the people that came forward, such as Louis Elizondo and Christopher Mellon um, and, and eventually Gary Nolan, uh, became the real the real movers and shakers of that group. And they were laying the groundwork and doing this and that over the next couple of years uh, until we reached a major event. And that was in 2020, the Senate Intel Committee decided it's going to put some legislation into the in this case, it was the uh, COVID Rescue Act. So it's kind of embedded it into a big $2 trillion, trillion dollar bill, kind of slipped it in with some interesting language about the UAP issue. And it, and it asked for a classified and public report back on that June 25, 2021. And that bill was signed on December in December of 2020. It was sponsored by Marco Rubio, former uh, a Republican uh, chair of the Intel Committee and, and former presidential candidate. That was a major event. And what happened in 2021? They started writing more legislation. And that was announced around July, and it was as championed by uh, Kirsten Gillibrand, also a senator who ran for president and uh, a member of the Senate Intel Committee. That established more structure for engaging this issue. Right? Uh, and they started to build it. Uh, and of course, it, it let, that structure was involved the Department of Defense. And then in, in 2022, they put in even more language into the 2023 National Defense Authorization Act, establishing the witness protections for in, people inside uh, and a number of other structures, created Arrow, the All Domain, all, all, <laughs> the all domain Anomaly <laughs> Resolution Office. Um, and that was a very significant thing. And then came 2023 when things really got going. Uh, in the meantime, the articles are pouring forward from English language press faster than I can log them in. And in 2023 alone, I logged in on my print media archive at my website, paradigmresearchgroup.org, 1,866 articles from English language press that I considered significant articles, uh, triaged out of about 3,000 because the others just for silly are not particularly significant or relevant or come from very limited venues or whatever. 18, the largest ever, 1,866 articles. And so what happened is a series of events that I'll quickly chronicle for you that are, are, are gonna go down in history. One, because of the, the creation of Arrow and the UAP task force, because of the witness protections that were being put, put in the 2023 bill, and the law, the lack, the stigma going away. Uh, you're getting things loosening up internally. People are talking. People are reporting, and and some of those people reported to a gentleman by the name of David Grush, who was working for the AT, uh, the um, I'm sorry, the UAP task force, and so he was the appropriate per person to get in touch with. 
and they gave him extraordinary information. These individuals were working in unacknowledged special access programs. That's the deepest you know, classified level of programs. And they informed him that the United States has had multiple saucers crashed vehicles for years, going back to Roswell, essentially, and the bodies of the pilots. And so he he was pretty impressed by that. And since he had a you know, career in, uh, you know, in the Army and intelligence, he had many, many contacts. And so he contacted, I think, 20, 20, 25, 30 of these contacts and just ran it by him and said, look, is this true? And quite a few of, them, of his contacts said, yeah. And so he went to the Senate Intel Committee with this. And uh, this, you know, this went on for a while. Uh, and after it sort of got around, he started having real problems at his job uh, within the United States government. It got so bad that he went to the uh, inspector general of the intelligence community under the National Intelligence, Office of National Intelligence, a gentleman by the name of Thomas Monheim, and said, look, I, 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 you need to deal with this. I have a serious problem because I, and he provided that inspector general the information as well. So the inspector general could uh, decide whether uh, the uh, harassment he was getting was appropriate. And he was represented in that presentation to Monheim by the previous and first inspector general of the American intelligence community, a gentleman by the name of Charles McCullough. That's a pretty powerful representative. And so he was given relief. His, his uh, complaint was valid and measures were taken. Unfortunately, that's not enough. If people want to threaten you anonymously, threaten your family, threaten you with death, you can't stop it. And so he continued to have problems until he had had enough. And so on a very important historical date, June the 5th, I was at the Contact in the Desert Conference at Indian Wells. I will be there again. I'm helping to produce it. It's uh, May 30 to June 3. It's going to be huge. 3,000 people, 60 speakers. Uh, Contact in the desert.com. On June the 5th, I'm there. And suddenly the word gets around the hotel that something huge is going to drop. And we, we start checking into it. It turns out an article uh, turned up on the debrief are authored by Leslie Kane and Ralph Blumenthal, the same authors of the New York Times articles of, of 2017, revealing Brush's uh, concerns and what he had been told and that he was coming forward as a whistleblower, that we have multiple non-human tech. That's 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 that's. Uh, uh, safe language for extraterrestrials craft, okay? And the pilots, which is safe language for extraterrestrials. And that uh, it's an illegal policy, according to Grush, and he is coming forward. And then the same day, he, he says all this to Ross Colthart, a journalist who had just become, well, he was at the time, but now he's, a, he's working for this growing, rapidly growing uh, news outlet called News Nation. It says it all there. That was huge. We, we were stunned. We, we all got together in a room, about 200 of us, and we started talking about it. And, and uh, Danny Sheehan was presenting about it, and Richard Dolan was talking about it. And we all watched it together, etc. June the 5th. And I knew, okay, it's game on now. And so what happens next after that, aside from massive media coverage, is this. Night. 39 days after, David Grush goes public 
and states we have multiple crash vehicles, which confirms Roswell, which confirms, you know, pretty much the ET presence. Sorry, that's what it does. Out of nowhere, one of our most powerful politicians, uh, Senator Chuck Schumer, suddenly steps forward and announces that, and he's not a, he's not a member of the, he's, he's an ex-officio member of the Senate Intelligence Committee, which is what is leading this whole thing. It is, in terms of the chess game, they are the major player representing the military intelligence complex. I mean, representing the Congress. And, and it is through that in committee that this is supposed to go. And so, and, and, and so it was members of that committee that had sponsored all three of the legislations that had been passed. And now the fourth one was, was in the works. And there was some language up in July on the, uh, the, uh, the Senate website. Wasn't a lot. And he comes forward out of nowhere and says, <clears throat> I have been working with Mike Rounds, who is not on the Senate Intel Committee, but he's on the Senate and Armed Services Committee, who, and a Republican, by the way. Because this has been very nonpartisan here, which I tell you is is a blessing, right? Because we are being eaten up in the United States by hyperpartisanship that's gotten so ugly and bizarre, it challenges you to to even watch it on television. He announces that they're going to put in fifty three roughly pages more of legislation in the fourth UAP language in the twenty twenty four National Defense Authorization Act. And it will include a, a full, robust, oh, it will be called the UAP Disclosure Act. It will include a full, robust program called the Disclosure Plan. And it will provide significant powers to certain members of Congress and appointed uh, uh, UAP review board, uh, as well as classification levels of the highest so that people that are reviewing material can go anywhere they want. And then as part of what I call one of the great grandmaster chess moves of all time, this is the kind of move that might be made by a, a grandmaster in the world chess championship. Right. And everybody's watching the game and it looks like it, it almost certainly could be a draw. It's going to be a draw. And all of a sudden the, the one of the players makes this unusual move. Everybody is stunned and they go, no, 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 that, that's it. It's ball game. And then after a couple of minutes, they realize, oh, my God, that is ball game because that was a master move. What was it that Chuck Schumer did that comes under that rubric? He indicated the bill would also include eminent domain power on the, by the United States government on any non-human tech or non-human bodies in possession of any civilian and or civilian company, which includes all of the defense contractors. Meaning, and some people don't get this and they got a little overwrought, it means that the government has the power of eminent domain, which by the way, governments do. I think it's the same in the UK. And so if there's something that the government needs to acquire in service to the common good and, and that is so important, they go and buy it. And you're supposed to be compensated, but you can't not sell it. Now, the, the defense contractors who have been working and studying and re-engineering this ET tech for decades has been paid a lot of money. And so they may say, look, you've already been paid. Now we want the tech, right? Eminent domain. Well, my God, that 
that's that just was stunning. Why? And here is why it's a master chess move. One, it completely confirmed Grush, who it made it clear under oath, right? It well, who was going to make it clear under oath, just uh, see, he came out on the fourth, yeah, 12 days later in front of a House subcommittee, which I'll get to in a second. It confirms what he said is true. He has, he's absolutely confirming it. Okay. He also completely is saying, I support the Senate Intel Committee's uh, legislation and what they're doing and the letters they've been signing. Uh, I'm totally down with it. And I'm, I'm the Senate majority leader. I'm a very powerful man. One of the gang of eight. Okay. He does that. All right. But he does something else. He puts the defense contractors and those still holding tight to the truth embargo in an impossible position for the first time. They have been gliding along all these years, all these defense contractors, which is, I think, symbolized by Lockheed Martin, but there are many. They, you, can't, you can't go at them with FOIA. They're exempt from that. They're getting paid tons of money. They're fully classified programs and they're getting they're learning about tech and reengineering. And all these these years, because of the truth embargo, they can't they can't strut out. You know, here's here's our new anti-gravitic saucer. It's going to be available in in 2027. You know, it's only going to be 100 million a piece. It's it's fantastic. They're, they've been sitting, waiting patiently for the opportunity to convert what they have learned and what they have done into massive shareholder value. And all of a sudden, Chuck Schumer says, we're going to pass this bill. And if we want it, it's ours. We will control how it goes. We may do a deal with you. Maybe you'll still participate in some monetization of it. But first, it's going to be ours. And if we want it in our possession, we'll get it. And this, they, they could not, they can no longer just cruise along underneath the rubric of the truth embargo, doing their thing and feeling very proud of themselves and making cute remarks once in a while, like we have the tech to take T ET home, etc. And so they had to take action. He forced them out of their bunkers. He forced them out of their cubby holes and forced them to take actual action for the first time. And what they did, starting right after that announcement, I'm pretty sure, on July 19th, is getting together and starting to talk to the representatives and, and the lobbyists under non-disclosure agreements and whoever else to get them to go to members of Congress that they could influence to strip everything out of that bill when the reconciliation conference took place, which was going to happen in, in a month or two, which we do in the United States. In other words, the House and Senate must reconcile the language, and that's what goes to the president to be signed. And at that point, everything's on the table, including that act. And so they, they what they did was they, they logically approached those members of Congress that are getting very substantial donations from defense contractors, right? And while Dem Democrats and Republicans both get them, get those donations, the Republicans get more. And two of the people that get a lot of those donations are very powerful. Republican Mike Turner, the House chair of the uh, the chair of the House um, uh, Intelligence Committee, and Mike Rogers, Republican chair of the House Armed Services Committee. And they basically said, look, go talk to people, do what you got to do. Let's get that language out of there. I didn't think they could succeed. 
I thought maybe at worst they'd get the eminent domain out. It would be like a trade-off to keep the other very important stuff in that bill. And maybe Schumer thought the same. However, they had more support than we knew because eventually we discovered that Mitch McConnell, the Senate now minority leader, had jumped in on the side of the defense contractors. And he was talking with Turner. He was talking with Rogers. He was talking with Mike Johnson, our Speaker of the House, and influencing other senators. And when the smoke cleared, what finally happened is all of the powers in the bill to effectuate the complete, eventually, the complete uncovering or bringing forward of everything the government has on this subject, not all at once, but in an orderly process starting right after the bill was passed, uh, in which the, the material would be looked at and reviewed, and if something needed to be postponed, that would be explained. And then at some point revisited and then move forward until eventually it all comes across the public's radar and ends up in an archive. Absolutely the responsible way to do it. Okay. All right. And so uh, the, the powers, though, to make that happen were all taken away. But the essence of the bill, meaning, yeah, that's what needs to happen, was still there. And it's in that act. So it's kind of confirming, yeah, eventually we're going to do that, except the, the the how it was going to be done was completely in the hands of the people that have it. They have the tech, have the documents, have the secret files. They were the ones that are going to decide. And so Schumer went in front of the, uh, uh, the Congress, did one of those uh, nobody in the room kind of statements to put it in the record. And he in, in rounds talked about how, well, they were disappointed at that. Yeah, they're kind of disappointed that all this stuff was taken out. But the, the basic bill was still there and they really planned to to move forward and, and work on that. OK. And so but what happened there? Th this is the first part of this amazing chess move. He forced the entire defense contractor industry to confirm the extraterrestrial presence. Because if there is no non-human technology and no non-human bodies in the possession of these contractors, there is no reason to, to worry about eminent domain. Nothing. So they just confirm what Crush was saying. And Schumer's confirmed it, right? And so that was a big deal, all right? But they had no choice. There was nothing they could do. All right, fine. Okay, fine. So... Here's the next part of the, this grand move. All of that in no way affected the Senate Intel Committee from bringing 20 of the many, many witnesses that have now gone to them and have been interviewed by them in many, in most, many cases, as well as by Arrow, and putting them in front of the world's people, right? Um, for say a week's worth of, of, of hearings that would blow the truth embargo to smithereens. <laughs> Nothing to stop them from that, okay? And so that needs to happen. And I'm, in my, I'm doing everything I can to help the Senate make that decision, the Senate Intel Committee make that decision. We can talk about that in a minute. Uh, and, and there are some very powerful reasons why that hearing must happen right away. But so, but clearly it is going to happen. The question is whether they, they get it done quickly enough. But the point is, once that hearing takes place and, and the testimony will be riveting, it will be David Grush times 20. Uh, and it will be watched by I don't know how many millions of people around the world. The president can easily come forward and simply say, 
without in a passive non non-political way non-partisan way look i i'm convinced i i i'm very impressed and, and my top people are impressed and we've we've discussed it and yes this this information confirms we're not alone and that we have actually vehicles of these entities and you want to know a lot more and i'm going to help make sure you get a lot more disclosure boom good and then you know what happens shortly after that maybe next week after that chuck schumer uh probably sponsored by with mike rounds and kirsten gillibrand and marco rubio and mark warner and probably the entire senate intel committee are going to submit the exact same bill word for word as a standalone bill into the senate that'll pass it immediately and then send it over to the house and say house we're in the post-disclosure world everyone on the planet now knows we're not alone and there's extraterrestrials here and this is the bill that is going to help the world learn about that you probably should pass it and yeah they will and so what only a few weeks have been lost maybe a month has been lost everything they wanted they've got it anyway as a standalone bill it's win 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 <laughs> this is what chuck schumer did on july the 19th of 23. Steve, since then. Steve, we've run out of time and we're going to have to bring you back to, to continue this. Absolutely fascinating. And I really thank you for your knowledge. Can you let the viewers know where they can find you and support you, please? ParadigmResearchGroup.org. Check out the print media archive. Go to ShiftStorm.org, S-H-I-F-T. That will show anybody in the world who's on Twitter how they can send tweet tag tweet messages to Senator Schumer, Warner, and Rubio saying, we want hearings now. This information is not just for the Americans, it's for everybody in the world. Shiftstorm.org. And if you want to see what the Hollywood Disclosure Alliance is doing, go to HollywoodDisclosureAlliance.org. If you have a substantial, uh, 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 how would you say, uh, work in, in dealing with the UAP issue, uh, uh, contact some of the members, ask if you could be referred as a possible founding member. If you have substantial career in the film industry, contact a founding member in the film industry side and uh, uh, to be referred in as a possible founding member. Uh, and uh, the whole mission statement is right there. I can come back and talk about that later. And let me tell you, there's all kinds of Hollywood content in the works right now. This stuff is coming out. There's a lot more to come. The truth embargo is over. Those that think it's not just haven't figured it out yet. Steve, brilliant. Absolutely. Thank you for coming on, spending your time with us. And we look forward to bringing you back soon. So you take care, Bye. my friend. All right. Cheers. Bye. Hello, viewers. Today, we've got Jake with us. And we're going to be talking about the Japanese mafia. Is it pronounced Yakuza? It is pronounced Yakuza. That is okay. correct. My sister so, lived in Japan. My they have lived many in names for themselves and many names in Japan. Yeah, my sister's fluent in Japanese. She lived there for many years. And um, she really loved it. She, she told me about the Yakuza. So, Jake, can you just start out by telling the viewers a little bit about you and what got you onto this? Sure. Um, I uh, came to Japan in 1988 as an exchange student. And my first job out of uh, college was working for a Japanese newspaper, the Yomiri Shimbun, uh, which is the biggest newspaper in Japan. Um, 
I think it had 10 million readers at its peak. Um, its newspaper, you know, readers decline, maybe maybe 6 million. Um, and like every reporter in Japan, you start on the police beat. That I mean, that's where everybody starts. Uh, sorry, I'm going to try and turn off the, the various doodads on the, <laughs> on the computer. Let's, let's see if we can get the mail to turn off without turning off you guys. Um, and so I think uh, the very first year that I was on the beat, there was a complicated case involving um, a serial killer, um, actually a husband and wife team serial killers. And one of their victims was a Yakuza boss and the Yakuza boss driver. And part of my job was trying to find out, you know, in the stages when we didn't actually know what had happened to them, what had happened to them. Um, and that was the beginning of sort of having to, to chase around Yakuza and, and deal with them. Um, my reward for a job well done was my second year. I was put on the police headquarters in Saitama, which is kind of outside of Tokyo. It's sort of the, the Brixton of, of Tokyo. Um, and, uh, you know, my boss told me, okay, Adelstein, like your assignment now is you're going to be covering theft, public security, and organized crime task force one and two. And, and actually I was hoping to cover homicide because that was a much more sexy job to have at the time. Um, and he was like, well, you know, 30% of the Yakuza are foreigners, the Koreans are some Taiwanese and you're a foreigner, so you should fit right in. And mm-hmm. and that began the 30, 30 years of covering Japan's organized crime groups, of which there are many. Uh, I think when people say the Yakuza, um, that's confusing because it's not a monolithic organization. It's not one. It's about 20, 25 different organizations, each with its own turf and territory, history, um, power structures, names for their bosses. Fortunately, you know, if you're a young reporter starting on this job, you can go to the newsstand and buy a Yakuza fan magazine, (laughs) which will have a picture of all the various guys and their names and their titles and their organizations. And, you know, you can study so you can sort of know who's who. Um, Just like in the TV series, you know, that's, that's one thing that they, you know, that we got right. Yeah, there are Yakuza fan scenes that are very useful if you're trying to know who's who in that world. Well, you've got me gripped from the get-go. So many questions. I don't know whether to start with the serial killer stuff or... No, let's go over some basics first. Okay. So, you know, we think when we hear mafia, we think of the Italian mafia. And perhaps, you know, we're aware of how that started and how it's structured. I'm not, I have no idea how the Yakuza started and how it is structured. Could you cover that sure so um you know let's skip the mythology and start with with you know uh, sort of the basics of the yakuza so originally they're kind of federations of two kinds of sort of outlaws one were street merchants which they're called tekia and the other were called bakuto which are gamblers so you know gambling is always illegal so the ones who are running the gambling um you know, we're providing entertainment in the area. And with, you know, running gambling, you also have to provide some kind of uh, protection and from, you know, from thieves who might prey on other gamblers and are, you know, people who won't pay their money. Um, and then the merchants were sort of traveling merchants who basically, if you, you know, Japan's festivals were usually run by the Yakuza or what we, what we would consider the Yakuza. So 
they're selling things on the streets um, during the during Japan's many festivals. They're the ones running the stalls, and selling yakitori or you know chicken on a stick and those other things. The earliest, you know, what we consider modern organized crime was Aizuko Tetsukai, um, which was in Kyoto, um, where Nintendo had its headquarters actually. Um, and they were found by a guy named, uh, you know, Isaac Kotetsu. He was called Kotetsu because he was really tiny, but he had a fist of iron. <laughs> and, you know, they expanded from just running gambling to loan sharking to, you know, small businesses, uh, extortion, racketeering. Um, and then, you know, the Yamaguchi Gumi, which is the oldest Yakuza group, was founded in 1915. As kind of a federation of dock workers in Kobe, which is a port city. Um, and, you know, they've been around now for a, a hundred years. That's makes them one of the oldest Japanese companies ever. Um, and, you know, even the Yamaguchi Gumi was essentially founded as kind of a corporation. So, you know, ostensibly they're, uh, you know, a sort of labor union, but they're providing temporary staffing and then they're running small scale prostitution, loan sharking, all these things. It was only after the Second World War that there was a period of kind of lawlessness in Japanese society. The Japanese police force were basically unarmed. They had been forbidden to um, they'd been forbidden to deal with, imprison, or harass what were called third-party nationals. So all these people who were brought over to Japan as slave labor—the Koreans, the Taiwanese, the Chinese—you um, know. They began sort of taking revenge on their Japanese captors. And they also began running the black markets because um, they had access to the bases. The Japanese nationals couldn't get to the bases. Everything was in short supply. And during this period of chaos, um, these Yakuza groups came back and reformed um, and essentially were sort of a second police force. Now, after a year went by and the Japanese police were sort of put back into power and given the, you know, the power to handle everyone including third party nationals the age of sort of yakuza working as a second police force kind of faded away but they had already sort of secured a power base all over japan in tokyo in kobe in all the other areas and the police kind of looked the other way because you know the yakuza were providing not only kind of street security and a second police force but entertainment right you know there's not a lot to do in post-war japan um, except, you know, go to a festival, uh, gamble a little bit. And, you know, they quickly went from being sort of disorganized crime to organized crime very quickly. And some groups like the Yamaguchi Gumi um, were smart enough to absorb like the Korean mafia. So that, you know, the, the Koreans informed like uh, Yanagawa Ika, they sort of their own, um, their own kind of, you know, organized crime groups and, some like the Yamaguchi Gumi were like, hey, you know, like it's a meritocracy. Why don't you come join us? Um, and, you know, we'll offer you some protection from the police because they, they're okay with us, not they're not okay with you. And uh, you've got a really good business sense. We can learn from each other. And so everybody merged. And then, you know, jumping ahead of myself here, but the conservative forces, um, the, you know, the, the people that helped bring you World War II, um, Kodama Yoshio and these right-wingers and these war profiteers were released from prison 
um, as the as the U.S. decided that to prevent Japan from becoming communist, that they're going to need to let some of the old guard go. And these guys who came back with money, um, you know, to consolidate power and form Japan's first political party, the Liberal Democratic Party, um, tied up with the Yakuza. Um, Japan's leading democratic, leading political party, which has sort of ruled the country for mostly, you know, except for brief periods for ever since 1950s, the Liberal Democratic Party was founded by a Yakuza broker named Kodami Oshio. Um, so when you have, you know, your own politicians, um, you know, and you have deep political connections, you flourish. Um, I'm going to give you a very brief history. And then one other thing that really helped them gain power and money um, was in the 19, about 1950, uh, methamphetamines, which had been legal during the Second World War, um, was something that Japan supplied to most of the soldiers, especially the kamikaze, uh, as part of their rations. Um, the Japanese government realized this is a bad idea. Um, we should probably not allow people to buy this over the counter. You could get it. You know, if you want to, if you want to sort of a second history of Japanese war atrocities, it's like what happens when you put an entire army on meth? Bad things. Um, anyway, the Japanese government banned it, and then the yakuza were like, "Oh, we know how to make this stuff," and so they began selling it because there were a lot of addicts, and that brought in a lot of money. Now, some groups like the Yamaguchi were like, "Oh, you know, meth is a bad thing," so ostensibly they banned the usage of drugs uh, and meth amongst their men um, and even set up a organization for the elimination of drugs from Japan. So, you know, the Yamaguchi founded this organization, which was heavily advertised about getting rid of drugs from Japan. And, you know, they always insisted that they were humanitarian organizations, preserving the Japanese traditions and keeping the country safe. So they never said we're organized crime groups. And, and since after the Second World War, you know, people had, had a lot of mistrust for the Japanese government. Um, the right to assemble was considered very important. And so these groups were not regulated in any way. You know, they existed way out in the open. And, and to some extent, um, the police wouldn't touch them or, or deal with them. So they gained a lot of power very quickly. I mean, they gained so much power and they were so much in the public eye that I think Japan's wrestling federation at a time when wrestling was a huge business in Japan, you know, pro wrestling was what people were into. At one time, the head of that federation included the head of the Amaguchi Gumi, uh, hmm. the head of another organized crime group and Kodami Yoshio, the right-wing nationalist you know, up to 1960. And so, you know, uh, some of the Amaguchi Gumi um, set up a talent agency called Kobe Genosha, which had, um, some of Japan's most famous singers and entertainers as part of their um, organization. So, you know, meanwhile, so you have the Yakuza basically um, running a lot of the streets in Japan, um, openly having businesses, construction companies, entertainment firms. And then Kodami Yoshio decided and kind of like uh, something reminiscent of this fictional movie called The Warriors, you know, in which all the gangs of New York unite to unite all the Yakuza groups and create a federation of them, um, which, which he did. So 
You know, they create this huge federation of organized crime groups, and they send a letter to the Liberal Democratic Party uh, about 1960, which, which, with you know, suggestions as to what they need to do. Um, and at the time in the Diet, the Parliament, there was one former reporter for the Mainichi newspaper. He was like, you know, when the Yakuza began telling us how we should be running our country, we have a problem. Uh, and that began to spark the, you know, also with the Olympics coming in 1964, suddenly the Japanese government decided that we need to crack down. That began the first crackdown and the first attempt by the government to, to tell people like, no, Yakuza are bad, very bad. We need to, we need to get rid of them. But of course, you know, that was not very successful. And, uh, you know, the, the Yakuza continued to hold power for many, many years. Um, tremendous amounts of power, tremendous amounts of capital. Wow, that's fascinating. I didn't realize it was so deeply ingrained. So the crackdowns then, were they successful? Yeah, I mean, they were successful in the sense they got some groups to disband, you know, like they sort of, sort of, and it was more kind of like a show, like, okay, we're disbanding and they, you know, uh, disbanded, but they changed their name and they went right back to doing what they were doing under a different name. Um, uh, Taoka-san, who is the head of the Yamaguchi Gumi, who was born on March 28th, 1913. I know his birthday because it's the one of the only few famous people in Japan I share a birthday with is the godfather of godfathers. Um, obviously, <laughs> like, there's a big difference between 1913 and 1969, but we were both born on March 28th. Anyway, Taoka-san, um, who was a very charismatic figure, um, and probably the you know the, the, the smartest of the Yakuza bosses was basically told the police. He said, "Even if there's only, even if I'm the only one left in this organization, I will never disband the organization." Which is why the Amaguchi Gumi has like a hundred years of history, more than hundred years, because he refused to disband, and the police were basically unable to do anything about it. I mean, they cracked down on him, they arrested his people um, on whatever charges they could find. The, the, you know, the laws were modified so that um, it used to be that you could only arrest people gambling if you caught them in the act, right? They had to be at, you know, like they basically had to have the cards in their hand, mm -hmm. um, which was, you know, and, and the fact that they wouldn't change that was kind of a sort of like, you know, a thumb in the eye of the, of the Americans, right? Um, you know. So, you know, the Yakuza will continue doing that with impunity and then they changed the law and you could arrest them after the fact. So that helped them put a couple of bosses in jail. Um, but one thing I should say, um, one reason is that the Japan, Japan tolerated the Yakuza for so long and what makes them different from the Italian mafia is that um, every organization has a, general, has a set of rules that the members are supposed to follow, the things that will get them banished. And in general, while there's some variations, um, these rules often posted on the wall of the organization, usually in ornate cursive letters, which are, you cannot steal, you cannot commit robbery, that is, you know, stealing with force. Uh, you can't sexually assault people, you know, especially in your own neighborhood, um, and you can't bother ordinary people. And you can't have unnecessary contact with the authorities. What that means is, you know, the, the police and the officer for many years communicated with each other on a regular basis, but you couldn't tell them everything that you were doing. You couldn't give them too much information. Um, 
but because they didn't get involved in street crime, didn't break into people's houses, they didn't allow purse snatchings and robberies on their territory. You know, to some extent, you know, if you had them in your neighborhood, you were safe. They would never bother people in their own neighborhood um, where they had their offices. Um, and, you know, they sort of provided a service, which the services were, you know, you paid them protection money if you had any kind of trouble, you know, hoodlums hanging out in the area, customers wouldn't pay their bills, um, you know, noise from construction, you know, making it impossible to do karaoke, you could go to them and they would take care of those problems for you. <laughs> wow. Okay. So if there were these crackdowns, but this, they remained deeply ingrained because it's kind of like they sacrificed elements, but then they reformed. How does that carry through to the present day? Does that mean they're still as powerful as ever or did the power peak? Um, I think what happened is, uh, sorry, it's a little bit too bright or weirdly bright. Um, <laughs> you know, with that, like everybody, they get greedy, just like the, um, you know, the Italians, you know, so it's like, okay, you know, meth is good money. So they got involved in meth. Um, during, the, especially during Japan's kind of real estate bubble, starting in the late 80s. At first, the Yakuza were basically working for the banks, like, you know, real estate is valuable, whatever you can acquire, you can turn around and sell very quickly. Um, but Japan has very strong renters laws. So it's very hard to evict people. Um, you know, you, you can take them to court. It takes forever. Um, you, you're often going to lose as long as someone is paying rent. They have a right to live where they, they, they live. It's a good thing. But um, the Yakuza quickly were hired by banks and real estate companies to terrorize people to leave their property, which is something that normally, technically really only a lawyer is allowed to do. Um, and so they began doing this and, you know, uh, Banks would terrorize people, clean out these neighborhoods, um, consolidate the properties, sell them. Huge buildings would go up. A lot of money was being made. And at one point, the Yakuza were like, well, why, why should we be the middleman? Like, well, instead, of, instead of just chasing out the tenants, why aren't we acquiring the properties ourselves and turning them around? So they became heavily involved in the real estate industry. Hmm. And gradually, you know, despite their, you know, ability to manipulate the press and um, project this public image of themselves. People became very tired of, of, of paying protection money to the Yakuza. Um, and they became tired of getting evicted from their homes or knowing people were evicted from their homes by the Yakuza. So the real estate bubble collapses and it turns out like that a lot of these distressed properties that are going to have to be seized, um, you know, are owned by the Yakuza. And the Yakuza are not graceful about, um, you know, taking losses. Uh, <laughs> and as, as the banks start foreclosing on them, one or two bank off bank managers get killed and whacked. And suddenly, you know, no one wants to touch those properties. Let me just pause you there. Did they have a preferred method of executing bank managers? Uh, shooting them. You know, Japan is a country with very... Uh, strict gun laws uh almost you know it is possible to get a hunting license but almost no one owns a gun and the penalties for owning and the penalties for using a gun 
or owning a gun or owning a bullet are so severe that you no know, ordinary citizen will deal with them. Yeah, if you shoot someone, uh, that sends a message that it's the Yakuza. Um, and you don't have to shoot that many bankers for them to fall in line. Wow. Um, you know, what? there's a saying in Japanese, hyakkai, uh, what is it? Ichibatsu hyakkai shikazu, which is basically one punishment is worth 100 rules. Um, so, you know, make an example out of one person and, and that's enough. Um, and I think that the original, I think it was a Sumitomo bank manager who was shot to death. I don't think that was ever solved. Um, but, you know, suddenly you have these, you know, this economic crisis, all, you know, Japan is heavily in debt. There's all these companies that are, um, you know, lost millions to the Yakuza. And in some sense, the taxpayers are supposed to bail them out. And so the Japanese government was like, okay, you know what? This is about 1991. It's like, you know, we, we need to do something about organized crime. It's also becoming sort of an embarrassment because it's being written about, like, you know, Japan's gangsters are doing interviews mm -hmm. during the bubble period. You know, uh, it became very clear that Japan's gangsters were like, you know, Chicago style Al Capone, you know, mobsters, right? They're, They've got fan magazines in your face. People know who they are. The Japanese government and police don't seem to be able to do anything about them or want to do anything about them. Um, so very weak laws were put on the books in 1992, these anti-organized crime laws. And um, Itami Juzo, who was a famous film director there, made this movie called Minbon Ona, The Gentle Art of Japanese Extortion, which was... Um, a dark comedy about dealing with the Yakuza. And the message of the film was that if you work with the police and you work with lawyers, lawyers who specialize in dealing with organized crime. I mean, that says a lot about a country when you have a subclass of lawyers who all they do is deal with organized crime problems, right? There's fewer of them now as the Yakuza fade away. Um, but, you know, that was a specialized part of the industry. Like, how do you deal with the Yakuza? How do you break contracts with them? How do you get them off of your property? How do you stop them from harassing you? Um, anyway, that was the message of his film, which lampooned the Yakuza. It made them look like dishonorable thugs. Um, and and the, most of this film is set in a very fancy hotel, modeled after an actual hotel in Kobe, in which the Yakuza are like, you know, constantly harassing the hotel staff, extorting money from the hotel, uh, you know, uh, in, in, in hundreds of ways. So they're portrayed in the, not in a very nice fashion. Um, and the movie was a hit, but one crime boss in particular, Goto Tadamasa did not like the film, uh, because it, because it made fun of him and it did not put the actors in a good light. So five of his goons grabbed the film director, um, in the parking lot in front of his house and then carved up his face very slowly. Um, so it would leave marks um, and then uh, fled and they were caught. And the film director, Itami Chuzo, had a press conference. Um, and I think for many people, uh, it, you know, it was kind of a wake up call. Like, oh, yeah, the Yakuza, they're like, these are bad people. Like, just like in this movie, this is what they do. They extort money. Uh, they, they don't they don't add any they don't add value. Uh, they use 
you know, fraudulent schemes to get cash out of innocent citizens. Um, all this talk about not bothering ordinary people, um, that's all a lie too. Um, they're preying on ordinary people and that began turning the tide. But really, um, these anti-organized crime laws, and I think I've got a chapter in the last chapter because I'm talking about this in great detail, um, were, were designed so that basically you've got a, the Yakuza got a warning, uh, the second was a cease and desist, and the third strike was you would actually get arrested. So in many ways for the Yakuza, this was kind of like a great thing. So, you know, instead of getting their members arrested for extortion, um, you'd get a warning, you know, and you could do it a second time. And then, you know, then if it's like you got a, you got a warning in, like it's okay, we can quit. So you kind of knew when to quit. And one of the things that also has made the Yakuza trend successful is as a member, the benefits are pretty good in this sense. Not only did the Yamaguchi Gumi start offering kind of like a retirement plan, starting in the late 90s as uh, when the when the group split apart into various factions. Um, but if you remember the Yakuza and you, you know, committed a crime on behalf of the organization, whether that was an assassination or um, roughing up someone who wouldn't pay protection money and you went to jail, um, they took care of you. I mean, they took care of you in the sense that, you know, while you were in jail, your family was looked after. Uh, you know, someone would regularly was putting money into your account in the prison so you could buy, you know, little tobacco and sundries and things, or they would bringing things directly to you in prison. And when you got out, you got a promotion and a wad of cash. Um, so that really helps ensure loyalty. Um, and, and, you know, I said to, to their credit, um, not only did they do that for, um, uh, you know, your family, like, you know, but, you, you know, if you had a wife and a mistress, they looked after both of them, you know, because, you know, that's, they're you know, very family oriented, right? They understand <laughs> that maybe not all people you need to support are necessarily your own family. So that was good. Um, and, and it also discouraged people from uh, ratting out members of the police. One of the reasons, yeah, because they have never been crushed in the way that you saw with the Italian mafia is that, um, until you know two or three years ago there was no plea bargaining in japan which means that you know there's no incentive for anyone to rat out the person above them right most of the time if you're arrested as a yakuza the yakuza provide the law the lawyer i mean there are a whole genre of lawyers that are basically yakuza lawyers that's all they do <laughs> a lot of them are ex-prosecutors so they, they know if you know how to prosecute someone you also know how to screw up a prosecution so that they can't be prosecuted well. Wow. <laughs> um, so, you know, once you're arrested, it's like your lawyer shows up. He's provided by the organization. Any statement that you make also is going to be shown to the people at the top of the organization because that's your lawyer, right? Your lawyer isn't really your lawyer. You could you can refuse it, but then, of course, that already arouses suspicion. So, you know, what are the benefits of ratting out your, your someone above you? Absolutely none. It's as the Japanese say, a hundred, a hundred negatives without a single plus. So this really encouraged people to keep their mouth shut. It's like you keep your mouth shut. You know, you do the crime, you do the time, you get a reward. If you, if you, you know, give someone up, when you get out of prison, you're probably going to disappear. The, the Yakuza don't kill like the Mexican mafia. They're not. 
except for, for some people like Kodo Tadamasa and the Kudo Kai. Um, generally speaking, you know, the heat that that brings from killing someone isn't worth um, the attention you get from the police and the damage to operations. But doesn't mean they're not above a judicious killing now and then, you know, just to make a point, right? You know, if you if you threaten people every now and then, you actually have to follow up on those threats. So that leads me then to ask you about the ranking of the various people involved. So you've got associates, made men, capos, bosses in the Italian mafia. Is there a similar structure or? Well, so, you know, we'll, we'll start with the Yamaguchi because it's probably, it's the biggest, most representative. The Inagawa Kai, which is the third biggest, is also has its own, um, its own structures. Uh, if you if you're looking at if you, you know, people who who haven't read Tokyo Vice or, or the Last Yakuza, um, and you just watch the TV series, which which is okay, I mean it's probably would benefit you to read a book or two in your life. Um, just saying, um, the Chiharakai, which is sort of the good Yakuza in the TV series, are modeled off to the Inagawa Kai, and the bad Yakuza, the Tozawa Gumi. And the organization above them are kind of modeled after the Yamaguchi Gumi. They're from Kansai. So basically, it's a pyramid structure, a setup kind of like a nuclear family with no women. Um, you know, at the very top of the organization is the first year group. So in there, you've got the Kumicho, the big Kumicho, or the Kaicho, the chairman, or the, you know, the group, organ or the president of the group, however you want to translate it. And then under him, you have the Wakagashira, which is um, the number two. It literally means young head. You know, even though the Wakagashira of the Yamaguchigami is like in his 80s now, you know, that's a whole other issue. Mm -hmm. And then you have all the older brothers and younger brothers and people below them. And then you have got a group of sort of second tier bosses, which are, which are called the Jikisan. So the direct lieutenants. So there's about 100 of them. And then under them, you have the third tier groups. So everybody pays to the top. Everybody has a sort of, you know, an Oyabun or a father figure above them, except the very top of the organization. So like this Tsukasa Shinobu, he's the head of the Yamaguchi Gumi, has been the head since 2005. Um, I think he's in his 70s or 80s now, I forget. But, you know, under him, you have, you know, his organization, and then under that, there's the second tier organizations, the third tier organizations. Um, the ranking is usually Oyabun father figure, um, the, you know, the Wakagashira, then the head of the headquarters, Hombucho. And number three is actually, I've been told, the best place to be. You control the money. Um, you don't have to go to the ceremonies. The police are always trying to arrest the number one or the number two. And so you have a sort of like wonderful sort of position where you have power and money and time and are less likely to go to jail. Um, and then under the Hombucho, which is, you know, uh, you have all the various sort of older brothers and then younger brothers. And, and that is basically the structure of the organization. It, it gets a little more complicated is because this idea of brotherhood in, in, in the Japanese mafia, you know, can be a older brother, younger brother relationship, or can be a brother, brother relationship, um, or it can be like, you know, like you're 60% superior than me and I'm 40% superior than you, you know, 
the relationships of these brotherhoods usually sealed by ceremonial ties with a sake glass, sometimes just sealed by a beer, um, is, you know, it's kind of a proclamation of friendship. Like, I like you. Like, I admire you the way you do things. Like, you're my buddy. Okay, you know, now we're Kyodai Boon. Now we're brothers. Um, that can also extend to people outside of your organization. So that becomes a kind of weird diplomacy, kind of like medieval marriages and stuff. So, for example, the uh, in the Yamaguchi-gumi, um, Takuchi-san, who's one of the top members of the Kodokai, he has a blood brother relationship of equal proportions with uh, Uchibori Kazuo, who is the head now of the of the Inagawa Kai. So there are these two groups, you know, supposedly supposed to be rivals, but the tops of the organization are are blood brothers. You know, I, the, I, the, I don't think the Yakuza use the word blood brothers because that would actually be um, in relations by blood, but they're Kyodaibun, they're brothers through this pledge of you know, brotherhood, um, that makes it very hard for them to go to war, right? Because you're my brother. You know, we're supposed to get along. We, we like each other. And that makes the other organizational members toe the line. So, the, you know, uh, uh, except for the Yamaguchi-gumi, which split apart um, into one group, into two groups in 2015, and then the other groups, there's not a lot of gang wars among the Yakuza these days. There used to be. Um, it's just not profitable. Um, and everybody tries to get along because, you know, that works better. It wasn't always that way. Um, so you have these weird things where, like, Yakuza groups send each other, you know, New Year's cards. You know, can you imagine, like, you know, you know the uh, the Chinese mafia and the uh, you know, Italian mafia bosses sending each other New Year's cards? The first time I say, I know where you live, right? <laughs> so the guy on the magazine cover, have they tried to arrest him? Uh, yeah, they have. They actually, you know, like asked shortly after power, um, they were basically able to put him in jail for a very long time on gun charges. And it worked like this. His his bodyguard had a gun on him, like, you know, on as he was coming up to Tokyo. And the rationale of the court was, you know, obviously, you know, that your bodyguard is armed. That makes you an accessory to possessing a gun. And they put him away in jail for a long time like that. His... Uh, his number two, they were later able to put away on extortion charges. Um, let's see if we can find a picture of him. His number two uh, has like sort of his eye perpetually squinty. It's just really terrifying. Um, <laughs> Takayama Kyoshi. Are they? Are uh, they both? Re are they both released now? Yeah, they're both out of jail. Uh, are they, are they back in the back in the same spots? Yeah, back in the same spots. Um, let's see if we have Takayama over here. It's, I mean, what's kind of fascinating about this is like this tells you well, this tell you a lot about the Yakuza visually. Um, first of all, you've got the, you know this magazine went which by the way was finally forced out of business in about the year two thousand eighteen. So there are no monthly magazines. There are weekly magazines that still have updates on the Yakuza, but you know, as a Yakuza watcher. Mm -hmm. uh, Okay, I'm just pointing this out here because it's kind of relevant. They, they always have penis enlargement ads. <laughs> um, the uh, incidentally, the head of the Kudokai, which is a which is probably the most violent yakuza group in Japan, um, Nomura, um, Mr. Nomura, who is facing the death penalty, 
Um, he saw one of these ads and he got a penis enlargement procedure and his nurse laughed at him when he was getting it done and said, you know, I can't believe that, a, you know, a guy who's so heavily tattooed like you can't deal with a little prick of a, of a needle. <laughs> um, and he was so angry uh, that allegedly he put a uh, hit out on the nurse um, who survived. Uh, but that was of the many charges that were against him, including some actual murders. Wow. It's one of the reasons he probably got the death penalty. Wow. Jake, you started out telling us about a serial killer. Oh, yeah. What? yeah. What's, can we can we get a bit of details on that story, please? Because it sounded fascinating. Oh, oh, okay. So the serial killer story. So in Saitama, um, there was uh, a, actually an ex-Yakuza named Sekine again and his wife, Hiroko, who were running a pet shop. They'd been running a pet shop for years. Um, but one of the things that sometimes they'd, you know, they'd sell people purebred dogs at a very exorbitant prices. But sometimes they would sell them a dog that was sick or couldn't reproduce. And then when people would complain to them or say, okay, I'm going to the police because you defrauded me, um, you know, I, I, he and his wife would kill them uh, and chop up the body uh, and feed it to the dogs. And so over a 10-year period, uh, about 10 people disappeared around Sakine again. And then maybe he just got, um, you know, convinced that he was untouchable in about 90, starting around 92, 91, 91, 92, about four people around him vanished. One was a housewife, one was a businessman. Um, and the other was this Yakuza boss named Endo and his um, driver, Wakui. Uh, and, you know, the, the thing they all had in common was they're all closely dealing with Sekine again and his wife, and they vanished. Um, and, you know, the Saitama police had known that there were people around the vanishing for, you know, for years, but, you know, the investigations had never gone anywhere. Um, so they really began looking at these people in like 1992. Uh, and, you know, in 1993, when I first joined the Yomiri Shimbun, I was at the Saitama. We, everybody understood, you know, that the police were investigating this and they were looking, you know, at these missing, missing people. And, you know, I think we had uh, about four new, four newbies on the police beat, right? So we're all, you know, in, in addition to our daily duties, we everybody got assigned a missing person to look for, you know, knowing that the police would probably eventually make arrests. So I got assigned to find out what happened to Endo and his driver. Um, and this is, you know, in northern Saitama, Konanmachi. So, you know, one of the things that we, that we realized as we were working on the story is that someone from the organized crime task force had been sent to join the homicide squad um, because, you know, homicide detectives are not very good with Yakuza. That's not their forte, right? They're not good at interrogating these people. They don't understand the psychology. They don't know how to get information out of them. Um, so as I began tracking this Yakuza boss and, you know, and his, uh, and his colleague um, trying to figure out you know why Sekine again would want them dead. De definitely, there was no, there was no, there was no doubt that that they knew each other very well. Um, 
I also realized that this cop who had been sent from the organized crime task force to the homicide squad probably knew a lot. Um, and so after many, you know, after many efforts, you know, I sort of befriended, I, well, I did, I befriended him. I befriended him and his family um, through persistence, through bringing ice cream to his kids, um, just like in the TV series. I think Katagiri is modeled after this detective, Detective Sekuchi. And, you know, and to some extent, he would sort of tell me what was going on in the investigation. Um, you know, but, uh, you know, not enough that I could really have a, a scoop early on. Because, you know, they were trying various methods to arrest Sekin again. Because typically Japanese cops, um, when there's a homicide investigation, arrest someone on a lesser charge and then use the 23 days that you can hold someone in jail without much access to their lawyer um, to browbeat them into confessing to the actual crime they want them for, which is murder. Often, the first step in a homicide investigation is someone is arrested for improperly disposing of the body. I mean, it mm. always follows that pattern, almost always. Or some other minor charge like extortion, or you know, um, you know, or you know, even bizarre things like not registering your new car in the place that you've moved to, whatever you can use to get them into jail so you can interrogate them. But so what's interesting is I don't know anything about Yakuza at this point. I mean, I really don't. Um, so, you know, you know, I went to the, the boss that disappeared. You know, Endo was a member of Takadagumi. So I'm like, okay, I'll just go to the Takadagumi office, which is outside of this park in Konan Machi and ring the doorbell. And I, I didn't. I rang the doorbell and like, you know, and I introduced myself and like, Three seconds later, these thugs come running out like, rah, rah, and I'm just running away to the taxi park nearby. And I was like, okay, clearly, clearly this isn't working the way that I wanted it to. So, <laughs> you know, there were, there were other ways to approach the organized crime group. Um, so it was kind of trial by fire. Um, but, you know, you know, I, I was able to find through just persistence and talking to people and, you know, and in this town where Endo was the number two in the organization, Takadagumi, people liked it. I mean, like, people were concerned about it. You know, like, like what happened to Endo? Yeah, where did he disappear? Someone directed me to uh, a bar where his mistress was working. Like, everybody knew he had a mistress. It was kind of like, you know, like, I don't know. I mean, his, his I mean, I guess his, you know, I guess his wife, uh, who I who never would talk to me um, was, you know, I, I mean, I just, I would guess that's that way it was. And uh, I ended up dating the mistress for a while. I think in the Tokyo Vice, the book, I just sort of disguised her name a little bit, but I don't think at this point she bears anymore because she's married with a different name. So it doesn't matter. Um, you know, when it's like 93, it's like been 30 years. I think we're okay. Um, and I didn't use a real name in the book anyway. Uh, but at the time I was writing the book, I was still like, mm, probably better shade these details a little bit. Um, <laughs> uh, and she was interesting, you know, um, and she, and she was turned out to be a great source, um, as to, you know, how he knew Sekine again and what their relationship was. And it became apparent to me from the conversation I had with her, um, and other of his brothers and associates that. He had been blackmailing Sekine again, that 
he had figured out how Sekine had killed two people and what he had done um, and was extorting money from, from him. And Sekine was kind of a celebrity, you know, because he appeared on TV, Japanese TV shows. He was making a lot of money. He was opening a new, a new pet shop called African Kennel. He was, you know, the whole business in purebred dogs was a huge, you know, scam, but a money-making scam. Um, and, and, you know, and it turned out eventually what we, you know, what we found out was that, um, uh, he had been blackmailed that, that, uh, Endo had been blackmailing Sekine. And, uh, one day, you know, uh, Sekine decided I'm just going to kill this guy. Um, and so he offered him a, a stamina drink called Yunkeru. Um, and you could like Japan has these stamina drinks, and I, I don't know how to kind of like you know, in the days before there was Red Bull, Japan had a whole series of stamina drinks. Yunkul by Sato Pharmaceuticals was one of the most popular, and they would sell like you know, the, these like $30 versions of the drinks with full of ginseng and caffeine and mm. things to pick you up. And uh, he poisoned, I think he used strychnine, and he poisoned the drink and and uh, gave it, you know, gave it to Endo and his driver, and they uh, drank it down stupidly, and they died. And then they hauled the body off to Guma, where they chopped it up, and then they, uh, you know, they took off the flesh, and then they burnt the bones um, in a in a steel drum. So there was almost nothing left. Actually, one of the things that was valuable. Um, about Endo's case was that Endo had this very expensive Dunhill, you know, gold-plated lighter, um, which, you know, which they had stupidly not, you know, not completely burned to a crisp, and that became one of the things that was able to identify him. That also became one of the things I was able to tell, like, you know, in, in a weird way, that sometimes, you know, it's not easy for the Japanese cops to talk to the organized crime members, but it's easier for me because, you know, they're they're more careless right i'm just a stupid reporter so some information i would like feed back to you know Sekikuchi-san and, and the squad like okay endo has this lighter it could be useful in identifying him it looks like this here's a picture of him with the lighter um uh you know and that was that was the serial killer and the wife and the husband thing um eventually you know and this is also in tokyo vice the book but uh, you know i i don't think i'm spoiling you by telling this Eventually what happened is the head of the, you know, the, the Japanese police were getting nowhere in their investigation, unable to arrest this guy on charges, you know, uh, and not going very well. And then Takada Gumi, uh, Takada-san of the Takada Gumi decided like, you know what, like, I, like I'm, I'm pretty sure this guy killed my number two. So I'm going to find out what happened. So Takada Gumi would just sort of kidnap people close to Sekine again. And then he would drag them to the office and they would interrogate them. Um, and so finally they got one associate of uh, Sekine's driver to make a recording with this guy named Shima, like in which Shima basically said on tape that there's no way you'll find the, you know, no way they'll find the body because we made the bodies invisible. Um, <laughs> and you know, they and then this in this tape with this sort of associate with the Yakuza, in which basically Shima is saying, like, I know 
where the bodies are and how they were gotten rid of, they gave this tape to um, Seki. So Takara gave the tape to Sekiyutsan, who was the detective from the organized crime working on that. And they were like, okay, we need to arrest the driver. And if we arrest the driver, then we will have the information that will allow us to find the bodies and we can arrest this guy for improper disposal of a corpse and we can break the case. And that's how it was done. It was a tape from the Yakuza that broke the case. Wow, that's absolutely mind-blowing. And and, grief. and and then something that came out later in the, you know, later with, you know, later in the court proceedings, um, you know, Shima, who had blabbed everything to the cops, it seemed to be that even though there's not plea bargaining in Japan, that they made a deal um, with him is, which is like, you give us everything, you take the witness stand and we'll let you walk as and we won't, we won't put you as an accessory to murder. We'll just try you for improper disposal of a corpse. You're part of that. Um, and when they did arrest him on charges of, uh, of murder, um, he just went ballistic and he blabbed to the press that, you know, this wasn't the deal we had. And I think eventually the prosecutors dropped the charges. So he never went to trial for murder charges. Wow. And he wrote a book about it, which very few people read called like I, the, you know, the dog breeder, serial killer murders. Um, I, I think the actual Japanese title of the book is like the serial killings of dog lovers. Oh my goodness. Wow. I'm sure you've got tons of stories, Jake, but we've run out of time. Do you want oh, to okay. tell the viewers? Do you want to tell the viewers uh, where they can find you and support you? Sure. Um, you can find me in any bookstore. Uh, if you're really interested in the Yakuza, look for The Last Yakuza, Life and Death in the Japanese Underworld. That The, the UK edition of that is coming out this year. The <laughs> Australian edition and US edition are already out, but you can buy a nice copy at your local bookstore anywhere in the in England. Uh, Tokyo Vice is also still available. Or you can listen to um, the podcast I did about missing people in Japan called The Evaporated Gone with the Gods. That's on wherever you listen to your podcast. And that has, uh, has some Yakuza content because when people disappear, of course, Yakuza are often involved as a reason for them disappearing um, are part of the process of how they disappeared or who they are running away from. Well, I think we've only scratched the surface, so I'd love to get you back to continue this at some point. But a uh, huge thank you for getting up so early in Japan. And viewers, if you've enjoyed this as much as me, please check out Jake's links. I'll put them below this video and take care wherever you are in the world. So a huge thank you, Jake. Cheers. Thank you. It was a delight being on the show.